Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 2, Episode 6, Maiden Form. Our last episode, The New Girl, focused on the growing force of feminism in American culture and its influence on several of Mad Men's female characters. At the end of that episode, I mentioned that Maiden Form is Mad Men's reinvestigation of women from the male perspective. Discussion of the male perspective is, of course, essential to Mad Men's social commentary. It's one thing for women to raise their voices for equality, but how men perceive those voices is an entirely different thing. Still, after watching this episode, I began to lament this characterization as reductive. That's not to say that Maiden Form doesn't build on the previous episode. It's not to say that Maiden Form isn't about feminism. But it's not only about that. Because when I watch this episode, more prominently than men, or women, or anything else, I notice Mad Men's overarching question, who am I? I realize why this episode is so impactful, and why showrunner Matthew Weiner says this is his favorite episode of the series. Maidenform absolutely reimagines women from the male perspective, with all of the brassiers and strip clubs and lewd misogyny you'd expect from Mad Men. But that thematic discussion is just one part of the episode's more impactful questions. What do I see when I look at myself? And how do other people see me? Maidenform was written by Matthew Weiner. He claims he felt that Don and Bobby's relationship was moving too quickly. He wanted a story to insert between the height of Don's affair and the new girl, and the affair's prolonged impact on Don's marriage. He brought back longtime director of photography Phil Abraham to direct the episode. The result is an episode that could only succeed on Mad Men, one that takes a set of seemingly innocuous events and fits them into a compelling, thematic investigation of the question, who am I? It's rare for a single episode of a television series to capture the series' overarching themes, and we should expect this. Series are meant to unfold over many episodes. But Maiden Form is one of those moments of lightning in a bottle when everything, from the American dream, to social change, to questions of identity, is thrown into the open. This isn't an episode with memorable scenes that tug at your heartstrings, like Nixon vs. Kennedy, or The Wheel. Maiden Form, instead, manages to build the show's familiar unsettledness, repeatedly contrasting how we see ourselves with how others see us. It's one of Mad Men's most underrated episodes. Let's dive into it. Maiden Form begins, much like season two, with a montage of women set to the December song, The Infanta. The choice of music is pretty out of character for Mad Men, but Weiner liked the song and I think it fits with the shots of Betty, Joan, and Peggy. The Infanta is about a princess being paraded in front of strangers, and like the princess on parade, Mad Men's women prepare for the day, as the show rifles through a decade of ladies' undergarments. Betty wears a bra and a girdle with a half slip, Joan pulls a full slip over herself, and Peggy pulls on a pair of pantyhose. Pantyhose appeared on store shelves around the late 1950s and gradually became more affordable and durable throughout the 60s they would become a symbol of the growing feminist movement, worn loyally by working women of the time. I've mentioned before that montage is used to condense space and time, 
to tie characters and scenes together with threads of symbolism, and this opening montage conveys a few ideas. The first is the degree of attention this generation of women paid to how they looked. The second is shown in the use of reflections, its maiden form central question, how do other people see me? In this scene, and throughout the episode, Mad Men implies that women are specifically concerned with how other men see them. The next scene reinforces this idea. We fade into Don's desk, where Duck tosses a magazine with a maiden form ad that reads, I dreamed I stopped them in their tracks in my maiden form bra. And just like that, we've arrived at the episode title. Thanks, Mad Men. I dreamed I did something in my maiden form bra is a real-life ad campaign, the creative product of the Norman Craig and Cummel, formerly William Weintraub, agency. The maiden form brassiere company arose in 1930 from the Enid Frocks Custom Dress Company. Maiden form began advertising around the tri-state area in 1936 with the slogan, There's a maiden form for every type of figure. In 1949, copywriters Mary Phileas, Kay Daly, and Kitty D'Alessio pitched the I Dreamed campaign. It was avant-garde for its time, depicting women half-naked, wearing bras in almost surreal scenes that ranged from I dreamed I had a stylish carriage, to I dreamed I was being followed, to I dreamed I won the election. The I Dreamed campaign ran until 1969. It was parodied by Playboy, by Mad Magazine, and even on greeting cards. It was iconic, and it vaulted maiden form into the American consciousness. Duck, Ken, Roger, Freddy, Sal, and Peggy gather in Don's office to discuss the ad. Hope you're taking notes. Duck says that their client, Playtex, loves it and wants something fresh and exciting. Don mentions that Playtex is already selling with a more traditional campaign centered around how bras fit. When Ken asks Peggy for her opinion, she sides with Don. Note the framing here. While the men are often shot together in groups, Peggy most often appears isolated in a one-shot, seemingly separated from the others. Duck suggests they work the idea to impress the client. He makes a spirited attempt at creativity with his I fell asleep in my Playtex bra and dreamt I was so-and-so. Don isn't impressed. We cut to a shot across the secretary pool, where Joy finds Duck after the meeting. Duck notices his family in the lobby as Joy struggles for words. We hear the howls of his dog, Chauncey, who we track between the rows of desks as he runs to Duck. Irish setters are notoriously challenging to work with, and this one was no exception, but Weiner insisted on one for the role of Chauncey. Duck moves to the lobby, finding his ex-wife Pauline and their two children. Pauline Phillips is played by actress Alexandra Paul, who you may recognize from her long-running role as Stephanie Holden in the 90s TV show Baywatch. She brings a cold formality that suits the role. I know you're not good in the afternoons, she tells Duck, alluding to his alcoholism. Duck reminds her that he's recovering. He surprises his kids with tickets to A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. You'll remember we discussed this musical in our last episode. Duck's kids mention they've already seen it. Duck leads his son Mark and daughter Patricia to his office. He asks about their life in London, but the kids seem distant. Freddy approaches and asks Duck for a moment, but Duck insists that Freddy speak freely, trying to impress his children with his authority at the office. Things quickly turn to embarrassment when Freddy asks for another box of brassiers. Moments like this really influence our view of characters. Freddy tries to protect Duck's daughter from an uncomfortable conversation and seems likable. Duck, meanwhile, is fighting his own insecurities, and his children bear the awkwardness. Pete, meanwhile, sits at his desk, looking at uninspiring before-and-after photos for the Clearasil account. Pete laments the account's stale campaign and wants to find something more modern. He mentions the TV show American Bandstand, a teen program hosted by Dick Clark, which ran from 1952 to 1989 and featured music ranging from Jerry Lee Lewis to Run DMC. 
Peggy suggests something sentimental. She envisions a high school romance that ends with the boy showing up at the girl's door on prom night. Sal smiles. It ends with some kind of line, Peggy says. Thanks, Clarice Hill, Pete suggests. This line would be used by the brand for years, but Peggy isn't convinced. We cut to some men playing golf, then to a shot that tracks through a lodge at a country club. The scene was filmed in Griffith Park, Los Angeles, and you may recognize the set from the 2006 movie Letters from Iwo Jima. Letters from Iwo Jima was directed by Clint Eastwood, with an appearance from Mad Men actor Mark Moses. The costuming is notable. Anytime Mad Men shows characters in their weekend attire, we should pay attention to the choices. Don wears a blue polo shirt. Betty flaunts a white dress, a golden tennis racket stitched on her left shoulder. Don keeps an eye on Betty as he chats with Crab Colson, a PR executive from the notable firm Rogers & Cohen. Colson notes that Don doesn't play golf, a subtle implication about Don's social status. Don seems unbothered, almost deferential. Colson mentions JFK, Jackie Kennedy, and the Cuban Revolutionary Council. He notes his role in spinning popular support for the infamous Bay of Pigs invasion. In 1959, in the wake of the Cuban Revolution, Fidel Castro became Prime Minister of Cuba. Castro's policies, including land and wage reform, alienated members of Cuba's economic middle class. His Marxist government appointees outraged the moderates that still remained in Cuba. Counter-revolutionary groups emerged, and Castro's government began arresting and torturing members of these anti-communist movements. Those who opposed the Cuban government fled the country, to Mexico, and the United States. The United States did not immediately label Castro's Cuba as an enemy. The Eisenhower administration recognized Castro's government following the Cuban Revolution. Vice President Richard Nixon met Castro in early 1959 and concluded the U.S. should exert its influence on Castro to quell the spread of Marxism. Castro campaigned throughout Latin America for a $30 billion U.S.-funded aid package to rival Europe's Marshall Plan. The same aid package would cost about $270 billion today. But Castro's anti-U.S. rhetoric, nationalization of American-owned plantations, and bans on foreign land ownership outraged the United States government. Throughout the 1960 election, both Nixon and Kennedy campaigned against Cuban policies. CIA officer Richard Bissell Jr. developed plans to overthrow Castro's government. He consulted agents David Phillips, Jerry Droller, and Everett Howard Hunt, the orchestrators of a 1954 coup in Guatemala. Droller liaised with several anti-Castro groups living in the United States. One of these counter-revolutionary groups was the Federación Revolucionario Democrático, a group of Cuban exiles living abroad, including former Cuban president Carlos Sevilla. The FRD's stated goal was to overthrow Castro's government and establish a free democracy. In May 1960, the FRD set up its headquarters in Mexico and began recruiting members into its military arm, Brigade 2506. The U.S. military and intelligence agencies quickly allied with the group, helping them recruit and train Cuban exiles living in Miami. In early 1961, the U.S. Department of State pressured the FRD to incorporate the more left-leaning Movimiento Revolucionario del Pueblo. MRP was founded by Manuel Rey Rivero, a Cuban-born engineer who managed the construction of the Havana Hilton Hotel, opposed Fulgencia Batista's regime, and initially held a position as Castro's Minister of Public Works. But Rey resigned, citing the growing influence of communism within the Castro regime. He founded MRP in Cuba, but was eventually exiled to the United States. Living in Miami, he was shunned by other anti-Castro groups because of his progressive politics. But the U.S. government thought MRP had strategic value. The movement had established groups in Cuba and gave the counter-revolutionaries a broader political appeal. 
Shortly after MRP's inclusion, the CRC was formed to coordinate counter-revolutionary activities with the support of the U.S. government. Led by former Cuban Prime Minister José Miro Cardona, the CRC had direct access to President Kennedy. Its main objective was to support an amphibious assault, just weeks later, at the infamous Bahia de Cochinos. On April 4, 1961, President Kennedy approved the planned invasion at the Bay of Pigs. Some aides later expressed skepticism, insisting they withheld their doubts due to fears of being labeled communist sympathizers. But their voices were never heard, and on April 14, 1961, an invasion fleet set sail from Puerto Cabezas, Nicaragua, headed for the Bay of Pigs under cover of darkness. I will not provide a detailed recount of the Bay of Pigs invasion, which transpired from April 17th to April 20th, 1961. Suffice to say, the invasion was a failure. The Cuban government had prior warning about the attack. Several diversionary tactics failed, and troops on the ground lacked air and naval support. Hundreds of men were killed in action, members of Brigade 2506 and the Cuban Armed Forces. Hundreds more were executed by the Cuban government. Thousands were held as prisoners. The failure of the Bay of Pigs invasion set the United States policy toward Cuba for a generation. Kennedy's administration was embarrassed and formed the Cuba Study Group to report on the failed operation. Some accused Kennedy of deflecting blame. In November 1961, the CIA released its own internal report, Survey of the Cuban Operation. Members of the Castro regime said the Bay of Pigs helped consolidate their support and strengthen their political influence. Some historians have argued that the Bay of Pigs made Castro more popular, fostering distrust in the United States and fueling pro-Cuban nationalism. The U.S. quickly imposed trade sanctions against Cuba, and Castro's regime embraced the support of the Soviet Union. But while it's easy to view the Bay of Pigs as an outright failure, American public sentiment was largely supportive. According to polling done by Gallup, 72% of Americans had a negative view of Fidel Castro. Even after the failed invasion, 61% of Americans approved of the action, while only 15% disapproved. This was not a disaster for Kennedy's reputation. In fact, the first survey conducted after the Bay of Pigs showed his approval rating rise from 78% in mid-April to 83% at month's end. Americans still viewed communism as a global threat. The thought of a hostile enemy so close to home became a constant preoccupation. Betty, meanwhile, talks with Marcy and Grizz Patterson, a suburban couple who frequent the country club. This scene is heavily inspired by Sylvia Plath's novel The Bell Jar, in which a suburban woman attends parties at a country club and muses about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. The Rosenbergs were American citizens convicted of spying on behalf of the Soviet Union. They were held in the Sing Sing Correctional Facility in Ossining, New York, near the Draper's neighborhood, and were executed in 1953. But Betty isn't in the mood for such ominous topics. The Pattersons leave her alone in the crowd, where she spots Arthur Case walking through the clubhouse. Arthur notices her and approaches. He's genial, and Betty suggests they remain friends. Sally approaches and interrupts, shouting, Mommy, Mommy! Arthur grows uncomfortable and says goodbye. Remember that maiden form investigates how other people perceive us, and specifically, how men perceive women. And this scene is the first of many portraying the Madonna whore complex proposed by Sigmund Freud. Freud proposed that some men categorize women as either venerated Madonnas or mothers, or as debased prostitutes. The idea has been studied extensively, both in academia and in culture, and throughout maiden form, both motherhood and respectability often quell sexual desire. Don approaches and the draper sit down as an older gentleman in a bright red jacket addresses the room. 
He remembers the servicemen who fought for America, many of whom will not be enjoying ribs this afternoon. He then asks the attending servicemen to stand five generations of war, from the Spanish-American War to the beginnings of Vietnam. Don stands reluctantly. He notices his wife, then his daughter Sally, who looks at him, clapping, full of admiration. I find this scene reinforces the question, how do other people see me? Don is struck when Sally gazes up at him, a hero. He's reminded of his fraud. The cinematography really captures this unsettledness, the camera pulling in on Sally's face as Don stares at her, and the conflict of identity exposed here drives the remainder of this episode. We cut quickly to Pete's Upper East Side apartment, where he serves some barbecue, courtesy of New York's Ottomanelli brothers. He wears a navy polo shirt and a hilarious-looking apron. Pete's older brother Bud asks about his summer plans. Pete mentions that he wants to spend the summer working in Manhattan rather than vacationing in the Hamptons. Throughout the scene, we're reminded of two things, Pete's disdain for his parents and his desire to feel important at work. I'm essential to the agency, he tells Bud. We return to the country club where several women strut through the crowd in bikinis, one of them bearing a slight resemblance to Betty. Don gets up to leave. You're going to miss the sparklers, Betty says, growing upset. Call me from the emergency room, Don replies. He leaves her and heads to the phone booth outside the club. He dials Bobby Barrett, who answers from another hotel room. She's alone for the day, but mentions she has plans with her 18-year-old son. This confuses and immediately spoils the mood for Don. But Bobby says that Jimmy is out of town all week, performing at the Beverly Hills Supper Club near Cincinnati, Ohio, the site of a deadly nightclub fire that occurred over Memorial Day weekend, 1977, 15 years after the events of this episode. Don hangs up and heads home rather than returning to his family. He wants to be alone, struck by guilt over the false self he's created. The camera tracks him, slowly moving through the darkness of the kitchen, where Don opens the refrigerator, takes a bottle of milk, and drinks from it as he looks pensively out the kitchen window. Weiner claims this scene was inspired by the work of John Cheever. I find the cinematography creates intimacy, the lighting and slow creep in on Don really bringing out his feelings of guilt. The contradiction in these scenes is palpable. Don is attracted to the version of Bobby he's crafted in his imagination. He fantasizes about her and views her as an outlet for his sexual frustration. But Bobby has a life and children that Don knows nothing about, and learning about this immediately subdues that attraction. These moments when fantasy fades to reality have played out throughout season one, in Betty's slow walk down the stairs of the Waldorf in For Those Who Think Young, and in the Japanese waitress's approach in Flight One. But the same secrecy that fuels Don's attraction to other women is something he reviles in himself which drives a wedge between Don and his family. As Memorial Day concludes, Don is again alone. Pete walks into Peggy's office the following week. He mentions seeing the movie The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which debuted in April 1962 and starred John Wayne alongside James Stewart. The film centers around Wayne and Stewart's run-ins with the Wild West outlaw Liberty Valance, and it introduced a famous Hollywood line, one I found fitting to include with our story. This is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. He's right, Rams. Pete reintroduces the line, thanks Clearasil. Peggy still seems doubtful, but says that making Pete's father-in-law happy is all that matters. I'll do my job, and you do yours. We cut to Don's office, where he sits at his desk, reading a memo from Playtex. Jane walks in, burnt red from a weekend at the beach. Roger brushes past her as she leaves. He approaches Don to borrow a cigarette, then insists Don make peace with Duck over the handling of American Airlines. Don reluctantly agrees, and Roger catches another glimpse of Jane as he exits. 
Duck, meanwhile, entertains his children. They let slip that their mother is remarrying a man named Sir Franklin Reeve. Weiner inserted the name in homage to his personal mentor, Professor Franklin Reeve from Wesleyan University. Weiner was, at one point, struggling to get into Wesleyan's packed writing classes. He met with Reeve, who agreed to tutor him individually and eventually guided three semesters of Weiner's independent study. Throughout his life, Reeve published many works of poetry, creative writing, and translation. He was the father of the actor Christopher Reeve. A slow pull-in shows Duck struck by the news of his ex-wife's engagement. He tries to command the situation, but slowly loses his temper when the kids reveal the purpose of their visit, to say goodbye to Chauncey. Duck doesn't want the dog. He views Chauncey as a symbol of his weakness, and in taking Chauncey back, he's forced to remember his failures. A parade of guys walks into Don's office, including Paul Kinsey, who stands proudly. Peggy follows behind. Kinsey pitches an idea for playtext that the boys came up with at the bar. Women right now already have a fantasy, and it's not going up the Nile. It's right here in America. Jackie Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe. Every single woman is one of them. Paul moves to Don's office door. He stands in the open doorway, pointing at women around the secretary pool. Watch this. Jackie, Marilyn, Jackie, Marilyn. Well, Marilyn's really a Joan, not the other way around. (laughs) (laughs) This scene is a Mad Men classic, smart, stylishly shot, and so neatly fitting maiden form central theme. It parodies the ad industry's reductive categorization of women, casting every girl as either Jackie Kennedy, elegant, cultured, and brunette, or Marilyn Monroe, blonde, glamorous, and curvy. But there's deeper meaning here, about how others make superficial judgments when they look at us, about how the outward self we project often doesn't match how we feel about ourselves. This idea is reinforced when Peggy voices her objections. She wonders how Playtex can appeal to women like her, who feel they're neither a Marilyn nor a Jackie. I don't know if all women are a Jackie or a Marilyn. Maybe men see them that way. Bras are for men. Women want to see themselves the way men see them. You're a Jackie or a Marilyn. A line and a curve. Nothing goes better together. Which do you think I am? Gertrude Stein. (laughs) I would say you're more classical. (sighs) Hellenic. Duck enters with Chauncey in tow and asks when he can schedule a meeting. He sets up lunch with Don and heads back to his office. As the others pour out of Don's office, Peggy stops Freddy. She's upset about being left out of the guys after hours brainstorming. Freddy brushes this off. They both agree that Don likes the idea, and Freddy suggests that's all that matters. Believe me, you didn't want to be in that bar. The work's done. Now go write me some titillating copy. We cut to Duck's office where he waits at his desk. Chauncey sits nearby. Don enters and cancels their lunch plans. They move to the sofa, discussing Duck's failure with American Airlines. It changed the way people think of us, Duck argues. I'm the one that looks bad, and it didn't hurt the company. He repeatedly asks Don's forgiveness, speaking in military language to establish a bond. But Don doesn't soften much in his criticism of Duck. You're pitching clients' ideas to me more than my ideas to them, Don says. He finally forgives Duck and moves on. As Duck sits alone in his office, Chauncey approaches. Don, meanwhile, lays in bed with Bobby Barrett. Their skin glistens in the summer heat as the curtains sway in the gentle draft of an air conditioner. Bobby mentions her plans that evening. She's catching a play featuring her daughter. 
Don is again surprised. He notes Bobby's secrecy and suggests he doesn't trust her. At the office, Peggy walks through a hallway filled with models auditioning for Sterling Cooper's Playtex campaign. She knocks on the casting room door and Ken answers, obstructing Peggy's view as he stands in the doorway. The door is a symbolic barrier between Peggy and the other guys, an illustration of how she's left out of business because she's a woman. Peggy seems upset that she wasn't included in casting, but Ken laughs it off and closes the door in her face. As Pete leaves the office that evening, he notices Chauncey in the lobby. We should have a dog for the office, he tells Duck, a reflection of both his privileged naivete and enthusiasm to feel important. Duck shoots down the idea, and Pete moves to the elevator, where he flirts with a blonde model from the Playtex casting. She seems disappointed in her audition, and claims she was tired after flying in from London. They fall in love with a picture of you, Susie says. Then you come in and they're disappointed, when all they needed was a picture. Pete shows her his business card. She seems impressed. They stumble into Susie's apartment that night. She kisses him and says she likes the taste of whiskey on his lips. Her mother appears from behind a partition, and Susie disappears inside. Pete stands alone in the seedy apartment for a moment, but Susie reappears, and they later make love on the couch, the TV sign-off, High Flight, playing on the TV. And while with silent, lifting mind, I've trod the high, untrespassed sanctity of space. Put out my hand and touch the face of God. I'll make several notes on this scene, the first cultural. High Flight was written by John Gillespie McGee Jr., a World War II fighter pilot in the Royal Canadian Air Force. McGee wrote the poem just months before his death in 1941, and it became prominent in American culture after its inclusion in the Library of Congress's 1942 Faith and Freedom exhibition. Before cutting to static, many TV stations ended their programming with short sign-offs featuring readings of the poem. High Flight was the working title of this episode. Beyond cultural references, though, Pete's interactions with the Playtex model further develop many of the episode's themes. Of course, modeling itself is superficial. It creates an inherent disparity between the actual person and their more idealized public image. But even in meeting Susie, Pete develops expectations about her. I thought you were foreign, he says, presumably because of her appearance and her mention of London. But he's immediately confronted with the truth. She's from New York City. She lives with her mother. Her life isn't glamorous. Note how the reality of family, that this woman has a mother, immediately desexualizes her. Pete sneaks into his apartment that night and looks at himself in the mirror, lit only by the pale moonlight that floods through a nearby window. His face is cast half in shadow, lit similarly to shots of Don, and he smirks, pleased at his own importance. Don walks into his kitchen that morning dressed for work. Bobby Draper runs around in the background, a bucket tossed over his head. The original actor was unavailable when the crew shot maiden form. Betty surprises Don in a bright yellow bikini, a matching yellow cloth draped over her shoulders. She smiles and asks what he thinks. Don pulls her into the hallway and expresses his disgust. It's desperate, he says. Note again the duality of women, mistress or mother, not both. The subtext here reads, you're the mother of my children, not an object of desire. Don kisses Betty on the forehead and leaves. She stands alone, centered, framed by an opening to the dining room. She pulls the cloth over herself, ashamed. Peggy, meanwhile, finds Joan in the break room. She's frustrated about being left out when the guys go drinking after work. The scene feels oddly reminiscent of one from Indian Summer. You never listened to anything I had to say anyway, Joan says. But she eventually recommends something very similar to Bobby's advice from our last episode. If you want respect, stop dressing like a little girl. 
Don hosts the executives from Playtex that afternoon. A shot tracks around the conference room, holding him centered in the background as he delivers the pitch. Jacqueline Kennedy, Marilyn Monroe. Women have feelings about these women because men do. Because we want both. They want to be both. It's about how they want to be seen by us. Their husbands, their boyfriends, their friends' husbands. He flips over a poster board to reveal the ad. Two women pose on split black and white backgrounds, one in white lingerie and a blonde wig, the other wearing black with dark hair. The campaign, Don suggests, is about the two sides of every woman. Jackie, Marilyn. Same incredible fit, two different women. And the beauty of it is, it's the same woman, the same model. Look at that, it is. And even if you don't notice it, you still get a bit of an aha when you read the copy. Nothing fits both sides of a woman better than Playtex. Playtex's executives are, of course, impressed by the idea. But they mention that sales are good, and they don't want to go away from a campaign that's already working. Paul appears dejected, his great idea wasted. Duck stands next to Don in a two-shot, prepared to face more of Don's frustration. But Don seems oddly content. Outside the office, the Playtex execs invite Ken and Freddy to a night on the town. Peggy watches from afar as the men laugh and shake hands. I'll go tell Campbell, Ken shouts. Night falls on the office, and Duck wanders the hallways with Chauncey. He finds a man working late into the night and asks him to go pick up some papers. When the man leaves, Duck moves to his liquor cart, opening a bottle of whiskey and smelling it. Chauncey looks up at him, panting. Duck frustratedly returns the bottle and walks out. Actor Mark Moses claims he took inspiration for this scene from a story about a recovering alcoholic who felt like his cat was watching him judgmentally. Duck takes the elevator downstairs and leads Chauncey through the building lobby. He walks Chauncey to the door, unleashes him, closes the door, and marches off. The camera draws in as he hurries away, his face pained with regret. I know many people despise Duck, especially at this moment in our story, but while Mad Men certainly casts him as an antagonist, we should recognize that Duck is not simply some soulless sociopath who hates dogs. Much like other characters, there is a depth of person underneath what Duck portrays to others, and Maiden Form is perhaps Mad Men's best attempt to expose that. Chauncey is not simply his dog. He represents Duck's past, his alcoholism, his ruined marriage, his broken family, his professional failure. You can see the pain on his face as he walks away. It's easy to dislike Duck, a character who so often seems incompetent, self-serving, even heartless. But we should remember that this is a man haunted by grief and addiction. So when you're tossing darts at your Mad Men dartboard, remember that circumstance was never really on Duck's side. Don, meanwhile, indulges his own addictions. He drinks champagne in Bobby's hotel room before they move to bed. Bobby teases him while he seduces her. Stop talking, Don says, tying her hands to the headboard. But Bobby continues, revealing Don's reputation as a lover. He grows angry, shocked to hear about this reputation, startled by the idea that other people perceive him as exactly who he really is. Don gets up as Bobby lays tied to the bed. I said stop talking, he repeats, as he dresses and leaves. The rest of Sterling Cooper enjoys a burlesque show set to an adaptation of How Mabel Got Sable, a swingy cha-cha that was initially intended as Mad Men's theme song. The scene was shot at the Three Clubs, a well-known Hollywood nightclub. Peggy shows up in a light blue, new girl-colored dress that is distinctly feminine. She lets her hair down and sits on the lap of a Playtex executive. Pete stares at her, disgusted, his eyes asking, what are you doing? Peggy notices him, then looks away. Don wakes in bed the following morning, 
his alarm clock buzzing on his nightstand. He moves to the bathroom, looking at himself in the mirror as he applies shaving cream. Sally enters and watches him. Note the verbal tie-in between Don's demand, stop talking, and Sally's offer, I'll be quiet, I don't want you to cut yourself. Don grabs his razor to shave, but he glimpses himself, stops suddenly, and tells Sally to go away. Don sits on the toilet, unsettled and alone, as the camera pulls away and into the hallway, revealing his reflection. The episode fades to credits. I promised that this episode was one of Mad Men's most underrated, and you might be thinking, what makes this so good? There's no profound movement of season 2's plot. In fact, it seems like very little happens at all. In maiden form, action takes a backseat to characters, the story peeling back the layers of these people to ask, who are you? The question is most evident in maiden form's treatment of women. Our last episode, The New Girl, centered around the perspective of Peggy Olsen, portraying developing feminist ideas and giving voice to several of Mad Men's female characters. Throughout maiden form, the Playtex campaign offers a contrast between how women see themselves and how men see them, and it shows how Peggy, feeling she doesn't fit into the male view of a woman, still struggles to fit into a world controlled by men. The new girl gave a voice to the feminine perspective. Maiden form shows us how difficult it was for women to wield that voice. Peggy's development in the new girl does pay off at the end of this episode, though. Joan echoes the feminist sentiment, start acting like a woman, and when Peggy takes this advice, she finally gains some acceptance. But while Peggy revels with the Playtex execs, Pete seems judgmental. Madman uses his character to portray one male reaction to women who embrace their sexuality, and given Pete's false masculinity, this reaction makes sense. But there's a personal layer to this response, from their first meeting about Clearasil, as Peggy dreams up a story of teenage infatuation, Pete once again grows interested in her, but by the end of maiden form, he's disgusted at the sight of Peggy's independence. The interaction is very reminiscent of the cha-cha scene in Indian Summer, and in the nightclub scene, Mad Men once more reveals Pete's insecurity. Pete's infidelity further expands on Mad Men's broader themes of desire and its impact on the people around us. But Pete's desires aren't sexual. He's motivated by success, by the longing to feel important at the agency, and his feelings of emasculation are most often driven by his lack of success in a world governed by other men. Infidelity is simply an outlet, a way for Pete to retain some control when his professional motivations are constantly thwarted. I've talked about authenticity, about how it makes Pete compelling, even despite his horrifying behavior, but in maiden form, he seems so desperately trying to be someone else. Duck, meanwhile, struggles to control his own destructive impulses, and in maiden form, the shards of his broken past are slowly revealed amidst his professional failures. Parting with Chauncey is Duck's desperate attempt to regain any influence over his own life, but after Mad Men's allusions to Duck's alcoholism, we're left to wonder how long he can survive at Sterling Cooper. Remember maiden form's central question, how do other people see me? The Playtax campaign asks, how do men see women? while work on Clearasil is more literally tied to appearance and beauty. For Duck and Pete, the answer to this question is about power. These characters want to feel influential, and their portrayal in maiden form seems to wonder, how do I take back control when things don't go my way? For Pete, this is about exercising power over others. For Duck, it's about controlling his own destructive impulses. Perhaps no character better embodies this theme of controlling the narrative than Don Draper. And while Pete and Duck struggle to portray outward images of power, Don is struck by the consequences of the false persona he's created. Note the contrast between Don's work at Sterling Cooper and his personal life. His work has perhaps never been better, 
and his Playtex pitch shows his talent in turning an idea into a campaign. But despite his success, he's deeply shaken by the lie of his personal life, first suggested at the Memorial Day banquet, then in bed with Bobby Barrett, and finally in the bathroom at his own home by his daughter Sally. Throughout maiden form, Don realizes not only that his image is a fraud, but that other people can see through this, that they can glimpse the real man hidden beneath layers of lies. This is the episode's strength in crafting these intimate, unsettling moments with characters no longer so self-assured about who they are. Mad Men conveys this idea in Don and Arthur's rejections of Betty's sexuality. Peggy, meanwhile, realizes that she's still not respected at work. But predictably, this identity crisis is most prominent in shots of Don. In each of these scenes, Mad Men illustrates a disparity between how others see us and how we see ourselves, and it seems to ask the question, which version of me am I? I've mentioned that Don's affairs often expose parts of his inner self, and Bobby Barrett seems to reveal the more debased person underneath Don's carefully crafted image. In maiden form, Bobby forces him to confront a truth, that they are the same. Don doesn't hold any moral high ground in this relationship. He's not better than her. The image he projects is a lie. Behind the facade of a war hero, a businessman, and a loving father lurks a more insidious, more detestable truth. Mirrors are shown throughout maiden form, from the opening montage to the final shot of Don. This fits an episode that so openly discusses self-perception, and it helps reveal the episode's big idea, that we can never truly see ourselves the way others see us. The rapid cuts and music give the opening scene a more playful tone, its women thematically connected. But maiden form eventually takes a darker turn, and the episode ends with the stark, slow movement of its final shot, drawing away from Don, who sits alone. It's an ominous conclusion to the first half of season two, which focused on the struggle to feel new again. But while Peggy seems to move forward, the Draper family has slowly fallen apart, and our next seven episodes will portray the consequences of Don's lies. Maidenform's looming question, who am I, really, will drive a wedge between Don, Betty, and their children. And as she seeks answers, Betty will arrive at an important conclusion, that despite his superficial heroism, Don is fundamentally flawed. We'll begin that discussion in our next episode, amidst workplace politics, Cadillacs, and Kenny's newest short story, The Gold Violin. Hey everyone, just wanted to say thank you for listening and encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. If you're watching me on YouTube, you can like and comment on the video. Really appreciate all of your feedback and support. I'm working on several projects. I'll be announcing those soon and I'll see you next episode.